Chinella, sunny fella, running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head. And nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is Blix. And this is John. Welcome to another episode of Fringeworthy, the podcast. We have some news this week. Pinnacle Games has approved a Savage Worlds conversion of, of Fringeworthy. So we've been doing an official Savage Worlds version of Fringeworthy. We already have the cover for it, and it should be a fairly quick conversion. We, hope, we Hopefully we'll have it done within a year, maybe, I hope. <laughs> Deadlines that make a wonderful sounds you go wishing over your head, but it should be a fairly uh, fun conversion because uh, if you've ever played Savage Worlds, it's a fairly straightforward and easy system to learn. A uh, lot, le- lot less complex than D20 Modern is. But of course, we're talking about D20 Modern uh, today because that's the system we're using right now. I'm on the team to do the conversion, as are a few other folks, and we should have this done fairly quickly because the main thing you could to do is do the conversion from original tri-check when where possible and from D20 when we've done a lot of extra work. To be honest, there's more tools out there for converting from D20 to Savage Worlds than there are from, uh, from tri-tech to Savage Worlds. Uh, Otto, Blix, do you have anything to add? Yeah, um, I'd like to uh, point out that we're still going to be supporting the D20 line because I wouldn't want anybody to feel like they're, you know, that, that uh, friends with these jumping ship and that if they buy the D20 version now, that they won't have support uh, for it, you know, a year from now because everything switched over to Savage Worlds. Uh, Bruce? Yeah, John, are you going to be using the same art in this new edition, or is there going to be new art for the Savage World edition? There will be some reuse of existing art, but we have a brand new cover. Blix, were you, were you the one to make it, or was someone else to make that art? Oh, no, that was me. Oh, good. I, uh, we, hopefully, I'll, I'll be able to see it pretty soon, what it looks like. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, this, is, this is what you get when, with the new age of game design, where I live, in, I live in Washington State. Bruce is in Atlanta, and Peter, you're where, in, in uh, Maine or in northeast someplace? Uh, yeah, I'm in Baltimore. Baltimore. So we're all over the country. And, of course, Tritech Games is in Michigan, so we're all over the place. And uh, sometimes I don't get to see things or hear things until I actually call call up and say, hey, what what new things are we doing in the game? Uh, Bruce, you have anything else to add? Yeah, all we need is somebody at Roswell, New Mexico, to make this a perfect trifecta. All right, tonight we're going to be talking about world building in the near future. And it's my opinion that this seems to be one of the easiest to do. Near past is pretty easy to do, but I think near future is fairly easy to do. I mean, everybody loves science and science fiction, at least if they're playing this game, they do. And near future is usually pretty easy to predict. 
there's all kinds of directions you can go in. And I'm going to start with what the world's going to be like, where you're going to go. So you're going to go to a world, and it's going to be the near future, and what's going to be different about it. Sometimes it's, it's easy to predict, and sometimes it's, it can be very hard to predict. But what we're going to go with is some of the things that would be somewhat fairly obvious. Uh, Bruce, did you have something to say? Blix, are we assuming that the near future is based upon our present, right? Yes, yes, yes. And then we'll get into um, we'll get into variances. I'm going to start with uh, I'm going to start with the things that are that we can know about, and then I'll step into the the field of changes that we can't possibly predict because of uh, new technology that comes about that couldn't possibly be predicted. Right, because you can have a, a near future on an, an alternate where there's a lot of changes that have actually started in the past and it's now the near future of them based upon our own current timeline. All right, all right we'll, we'll work that in. One of the things that's the easiest, seems to be the easiest to do about the future yeah. is uh, futuristic disasters. Uh, that seems to be in storytelling and in movies, um, seems to be very common. Um, for example, nuclear disaster is a is a very very common type of near future, and it's very real because mainly because it's very realistic. It'd be a good. I was thinking for uh, nuclear missions, you could have or you know nuclear disaster future. You could have uh, be a good one for uh, some type of recovery mission where time is an issue due to uh, radiation exposure. Say for example, if the players have to wear suits, then it's always a challenge to avoid tearing the suit. And then there's the, the whole idea of, of oxygen supply because you want to breathe air that's radioactive because you breathe in like beta particles and stuff. Um, those would make for uh, really fun adventures. And in Fringeworthy, there is no protection from the portal against radiation. I mean, when you go through, if you have some radioactive material on it, like if you breathe in some uh, nuclear waste, yeah, that's going to get converted down to a stable thing. However, any free radicals in your blood, any damage to your genetic material, that's not going to get changed. That's not going to get fixed. So it's unlike a biological plague where you got a disease because you went to a world where they had a super flu and you could just walk through the portal and, ah, you're cured. Radiation is something you just can't walk away from, just laugh about, because it, it'll, if damage has already been done, it'll carry through to your further adventures. Yes, and also one thing you may want to consider, too, is that, yes, it's being converted into a stable isotope. That stable isotope can also itself be you know, poisonous. Uranium turns to lead. Plutonium turns to various other heavy metals. So you may end up being just as poisoned as you were with the radiation. So, yeah, it's it's not nice and not good. Well, also, some of the things I was thinking that would be dangerous is if you get over there and not even thinking about getting back to the ring, you could die before you even make it back to the ring, depending on how hot the radiation is. But that would be the sort of thing that only a sadistic GM would put you through. He'd at least give you a chance, I would hope. <laughs> Maybe. Of course, folks, remember... If you can see Cherkinoff radiation in the atmosphere, don't start any long books. That's, <laughs> it's just bad. What's Cherkinoff radiation? Oh, that's when you have uh, radiation particles cracking light speed in the atmosphere, which means you're, you're, you're basically, in, it, the radiation level is so high, you basically have minutes to live at that point. But what does it look like? 
It's a blue glow. Uh, ever see those pictures of a of a, of a uh, reactor, a water reactor going, and it shows a blue glow around the ra uh, reactor core? That's Cherokee radiation in water. In the atmosphere, it would just it would just be a blue glow or, or glowing, uh, or the rocks would be glowing, the ground would be glowing. But basically, if the if the ground's glowing, your suits you, you would need a lead suit about inches thick to keep, protect you from that. And I, you know that's so yeah, it's just bad in that case. Yeah, it would suck to be you to be there. Um, uh, Blix, uh, what about the biological you were talking about? Okay. Um, the biological, uh, a biological disaster in the future is very, uh, is, is exceptionally realistic. You know, it, it, can be, it can be the result of uh, biological experiments or biological warfare, or it could just be completely natural. Um, or you could even go crazy with it and have some kind of, you know, attach either some kind of, Super science or super uh, supernatural element to it. Um, for example, going into like for example, uh, Dawn of the Dead, where you have a zombie world, um, that could be the result very easily of a biological disaster, much like uh, Twenty Eight Days Later or whatever. I mean, if you're going to use a movie as a cliche, but but the point of the matter is, is that uh, biological disasters could be very uh, could be very interesting, could be very exciting, could be a very very interesting world to go to. You would most likely have, if there had been like a really big biological disaster, and not everybody's dead, of course, you would have um, society living in isolated regions, or um, you would also have a lot of military and, and police presence if it wasn't too bad. If it was really bad, then you'd have sort of like the whole, um, like the movie Postman, um, where you would have these, you know, these little, like little groups of war with warlords and such. And Bruce? The adventurers themselves can actually cause a biological holocaust. Remember that a lot of these adventures, you come back to the same worlds. You, you have a, an adventure there for a while, and then you go off and do other things and come back. And when you come back, you may find out that, oh, uh, you know, we uh, left some animal. We had an experimental animal that escaped during that. And now it's the equivalent of the uh, rabbits in Australia. Or uh, the portal system does not eliminate parasites. And maybe you had some uh, tapeworm or some other kind of parasite, even lice and things like that, that might cause a, an epidemic, a, a death reaction amongst the local populace because they're not earth primers. Therefore, you know, the, the adventurers themselves can actually cause the plague. And now they've got to, to deal with the aftermath of their own actions, even if they weren't planned. There's also because you have to consider too that this biological disaster could be historical as well, even though it's in the future or even near future, it still could be a historical event, such such as say the Black Plague, not just wiping out a quarter or half of the population in Europe. Quarter. A quarter. It wipes out ninety-five percent of the population of Europe and Asia and parts of northern Africa. That would be a major disaster. That would all that would change the way the world. Uh, but that would change history completely at that point to where to where it'd be unrecognizable. So if that happened here uh, in in the near future, then you'd have America as like as that show after man, where everything was taking over because literally the landscape had been emptied by this plague, and you would have had time to actually see some of the. Uh, uh, degenerative effects of time moving on because it is the near future versus just as it happens. Correct. And your surviving pockets of man would be in isolated regions rather than urban, you know, your urban regions. They'd be more of your, uh, not even suburban, they would be people 
in very small towns, like, like these little one-horse towns in, in West Virginia. So a rabid survivalist would see the adventurers, uh, the, the IDET team, as someone who could be carrying the plague to them and be unwilling to have any negotiations except at a distance of maybe a quarter of a mile and a couple of rifles between them. Right, right, right. And then, you know, you might be able to break the ice with uh, giving them food and, and ensuring them that that you're not sick. You know, maybe they'd have you stripped down because if you're going to run something like that and you want to have the adventure to be able to move on without it, you know, without it bogging things down to the point to where you couldn't get anything done, it would have to be some kind of sickness where there'd be really telltale signs so that your party members could integrate with the society at some point. Well, you could even be the saviors of that society because let's say it's some kind of genetic damage and they're far enough in the future where they can do gene splicing or gene repair, but they need a good genome. Let's say they didn't, ha- they didn't do the human genome project like they did on Earth Prime. Then they would need somebody who was a pure strain human. And therefore, here you come walking in off the portals and you're essentially a pure strain human and they would be going after your genetic code, possibly involuntarily, so that they could repair their own damage and possibly make their, uh, their children viable again. Most diseases, once they've killed off their host, they pretty much don't last much longer, uh, especially really virulent ones. If you come to a world and it's been, say, about 10 years after the disaster, you're pretty safe unless, of course, you find a, a surviving pocket of humanity that somehow has become a, a carrier of the disease rather than a victim of, victim of that disease. So that's something else to keep in mind, that those rabid survivalists may be alive because they caught the disease, but they didn't die from it. They, they are, in fact, immune from it, or they are a carrier of it. And you just now get infected with the disease that kills within, say, days, and you're weeks from the, from the portal, unless you start, like, right now. Right. Plus, um, don't forget that if it's been several years after the plague has taken its real toll and, and people have had time to adjust, they're not going to be as crazy about it. The people will usually get crazy while, while they're in the thick of it. But then once things, you know, because people get desensitized to things. So the adverse crazy reactions of shoot first, ask questions later would be within the first year. But then after that, people would mellow out. And whether, whether that's good, you know, for good or ill, that's just the way people work. So it's really important for the GM to decide how far, even though this is a near future, meaning that it's far enough in advance of our own present day that we could do some hand-waving and saying, this is happening. But he has to say before the point of entry of the adventurers, how far back in time did this thing actually occur? Uh, yeah, correct. Absolutely. What other kind of disasters can there be, a mission for the uh, team to discover? Uh, natural disaster, such as an asteroid hit or a uh, supervolcano explosion, where you know a lot of soot is is passed up into the atmosphere, and there's a there's a winter that lasts several years and kills off most of the vegetation and poisons the oceans, and then diminishes society due to uh, mostly due to hunger, uh, because food is not viable. So a world like that that you would go to, you would have survivors. But they would be very hardy people, uh, and society would look very different. It would be very, it'd be a lot more practical and a lot more local. There'd be less um, global connection. Yeah, I uh, always hate the scenarios where you walk through the portal and Mount Vesuvius is about to erupt. 
or the calendra at Yellowstone is dropping in and, and you're getting the big dust cloud that's going to cover 90% of the United States. I don't think those are good adventures when we talk about the near future. Uh, I think that the calamity has to have occurred sometime in the past, and we are seeing the recovery process that the adventures come into. There's also a chance of a super tsunami, uh, either in the Azores, uh, there's a, uh, not, not, not the Azores, but there's islands, some islands near the Azores, I can't remember the name, that basically are, well, cracking in half and could literally dump and cause a tsunami, a super tsunami, or actually they call, I think they call it a, a mega tsunami, to go right across the ocean and hit the eastern seaboard of the United States and portions of uh, South America. And conversely, in Hawaii, there's a thing called the Big Crack. It's a section of the island that's slowly cracking apart and threatening to collapse into the ocean and causing a mega tsunami that would head mainly actually towards Australia, uh, southern, uh, a southern Asia, and possibly hit uh, southern, uh, southern portions of South America and maybe southern portions of, of North America with a mega tsunami. Those are quite possible, uh, plausible scenarios. But like, like Bruce said, they should, be, they should have already have happened. Not they're going to happen and it's up to you to, to save the world because you can't. There's no way you can stop a super volcano from, from erupting. There's no way you can stop half of, you know, not, well, not half, but a major portion of Hawaii sliding into the ocean. Um, those are disaster movies with really cheesy actors and cheesier endings. Uh, actually, I just got see, done seeing one called Meteor. But anyway... <laughs> Okay, so let's say that happens. We have a, um, some kind of calamity. It's either a biological or a toxin. A volcano goes off or an asteroid hits, and it's now 20 years later. Um, it's now the near future. What kind of world are we, do you think we'd be looking at? We're, we're looking at a world where global communication is pretty much uh, broken down. Uh, there, there might be some, but it's not going to be like we have today. Uh, we're not going to have mega urban centers. Uh, we're going to have pockets of society. People are going to return to living within the means of what their area can afford to give them. Now, they may be stepping towards that. They may be trying to rebuild society back to that point. But if they've already built it back to that point, then there's no adventure because then what you've created is a world that has gone through a disaster and is now back to the way it was. And and, and that's kind of okay. I mean, you you could do that. But I don't think that's what we're talking about here. That wouldn't really be a disaster, you know, post-disaster adventure. That would be a world that had a post-disaster, you know, it's way, way post-disaster. I, I think it would have to be kind of current. It would have to affect the adventure to even be considered for characters to adventure in it. So what would I'm the adventure hooks be then? You can make uh, a contacts for supplying equipment to try and rebuild society. That would be one. Uh, I was thinking, you know, yeah, right, like a world like Mad Max would be, would be, you know, you could have like Mad Max type adventures, depending on your, your party, because if you have a, a group of scientists, I can't see scientists running around in cars trying to get gasoline and then, you know, and, and shooting it up. Um, but, but depending on your adventures, you might have an adventure like that, and that would be fun. 
but they would have to deal with the social disorder that came with that kind of a breakdown. The Mad Max situation, I think, would be more uh, the fact that there's roving gangs out there, scavengers, perhaps even attacking any sign of a buildup of civilization, because that means that there's resources for them to take. So you show up and you start providing some village or whatever with an electrical generator, and you start giving them food and, and giving them bottles of vitamins, and these people start looking better, and all of a sudden some roving warlord says, hey, you know, there's some good stuff going over there. Maybe it's time for us to come back and do a little more harvesting. Or another thing you could do is if you're playing with a group a lot of times and there's, there's usually like somebody who can't show up, especially as you get into your older groups, so that a lot of times what we'll do is we'll have whoever doesn't show up becomes, the, becomes sort of a victim of the adventure. They, they're the guy that gets captured. Or you could even have NPCs that get captured. I mean, half the time I think the reason why our Game Master puts NPCs in is just so he has somebody to capture to make us do stuff, which is cool. I mean, that, that's perfectly fine. It's perfectly viable, and it makes for good adventuring. But imagine you you go through the portal, or and it's a let's say it's a warp, and you're driving down the road, and the, you know the Game Master tells you it's a you know, it's a broken down road, but you seem to be traveling on it okay. And then you get attacked by this gang of of people in these armored cars you know, shooting uh, bolts at you, and they happen to capture one of your people. And then, you know, you, you have to limp to the next town, uh, and, and then the adventure becomes it becomes an adventure of rescue and survival. And that always makes for a fun adventure, I think. It's like a little bit of a lower common denominator of an adventure, but it can be a lot of fun. I was just thinking of another possible plot hook would be, uh, as you say, not resupply, but one of aid. I mean, these folks probably won't have any medical aid or at best they'll have primitive medical aid that would be one thing and I know that sounds like a boring topic but if you take a look what happens in areas in, in the world right now where this occurs such as Africa where people start uh, providing medical aid what happens is that the local strongmans come in and they demand that you give the aid to their people first so now you're in a situation where where people are fighting each other over people who can give good medical aid, the fringe race. So that would actually be one for the scientists. It's always a real challenge when you have these kinds of situations because sometimes that strong man is the very man that you want to deal with because he can, in fact, move the material around. He can to get the aid to it, first his own people, but then other people, sometimes for a price. But the fact is he's the one who can get things done, but he can be the most despicable of persons you'd ever want to meet. And that's very hard for some players to deal with. There's the ever favorite, I call it the seven samurai plot, where basically you're the seven samurai, there's the village, go protect it. Remember, though, uh, about half the samurai died in the process. Yeah, and Seven Samurai was a fantastic movie. Just a little sidebar. If you haven't seen it yet, go get it. Another thing to consider that's very important with Near Future is what kind of tech do they have and what kind of tech shouldn't they have and what kind of stuff you, you want to deal with as a game master or even as a player. I'm going to start with uh, weapon systems because a lot of people like to fight and there's a lot of combat that goes on in role-playing games. And I know Fringe where they generally doesn't try to boil itself down to that. It tries to move on with the science and the, the technology. But I think it's important to know what kind of weapons you'd be dealing with. If you're talking about near future, you're probably still not talking about any kind of man-portable laser guns. You might have... I, I'm thinking 
what's most likely the next step in scientific weaponry is going to be electromagnetic accelerated weapons. Uh, these are probably the most realistic and efficient weapons of the future. Uh, they would be caseless rounds, so you'd have uh, you'd have a clip that wouldn't have any kind of shells or anything. Everything that was in that clip would be used. Uh, they would be small, little needle-like rounds, and they'd be fired at really high acceleration. They'd be fired by an electromagnetic accelerator so that when they hit, they would punch through just about any kind of armor, and then they would be moving at such a high velocity that would just tear the hell out of you. You're taking a basic flechette weapon, but instead of being fired by a, a, a powdered charge, or a, in this case a smokeless charge, you're using a, basically a coil gun or a um, rail gun to fire them off with. Yeah, that's correct. If you use powder, you have a chance of disintegrating the round because it's, it's so tiny. That's true. Though with uh, caseless rounds, the uh, HNK G11 could fire caseless flechette rounds from its charges. The flechette is embedded within the caseless round and it's, electri- and it's electronically fired. And it was a capable, pretty high rate of firing and almost no maintenance. One of the problems, though, with high-tech weapons like that is that they also require lots of power. You would have to have a fairly strong, intense power source that can deliver lots of power quickly. That Actually, that technology right there would be more valuable than the weapon. A battery that can release that much power or simple capacitor system that can release that much power fairly quickly but be safe to the, to the user would be amazing. Right now, we don't have anything like that. There are capacitors that can do that, but they weigh like pounds and they're enormous. Uh, they get them small enough would be amazing, and that would be, like I said, that'd be worth more to the folks back in Earth Prime than the weapons would be, than the weapon. H.P. Piper had kind of right. Energy weapons are nice, but bullets go through lots, lots of things that laser beams can't. <laughs> That's the real crux, isn't it, John? The players are going to think that the near future worlds are the best possible worlds they could go to for the simple reason is they imagine that these worlds are going to have technology, the next generation technology, the the technology that we would like to have or we're in development now and they could get a jump on it. Instead of spending billions of dollars to come up with the next generation computer chips, we just go over a couple alternates and they've got it at the local radio shack. The same with weapons. Here you've got a capacitor or a uh, some kind of a power generation system that can produce a, a very large spike of energy, and that could be used for so many other things as well. So the people are going to really, really love these futuristic, near-future worlds until they find out that this technology may not be as easy to reproduce as they may think, or there's a lot of different technologies that they have to develop at the same time in order to make the one technology work. And as an example, if you had good nanotechnology construction, then you'd be able to make a capacitor that had very little space between the plates. The way capacitors work is they have two opposing plates and they build up a charge between the two of them. Therefore, the more surface area you have inside of a capacitor, the more capacity the capacitor has. Therefore, with nanotechnology, you could make that space as small as is reasonable as far as as what you're trying to do. And therefore, you'd be able to pack more jewels, more, more power into a smaller space. So here you have the ability to 
store enormous amounts of energy in this capacitor. And maybe you would charge this thing up once a day and then be able to use it later on. But then you'd have to have some kind of a metering or technology so you could extract it out of the thing in a large burst, but at the same time, not fry the monitoring equipment. So now that's the difference in some kind of computer control or even some kind of power modulation system. That's totally different than a capacitor. And then maybe there's some exotic materials that are necessary, room temperature conductors that are required to allow the power to go flow into the gun without burning up the gun in the process of firing it. So now we have superconductors in present temperatures and on and on. So a lot of these devices that sound so cool are really interdependent on each other and that's where I think you can really make the, the you can monitor players and keep them from getting too big of a bonus out of going to a near future world. They'd have to pick and choose the things that they want. In that scenario there, if you have a capacitor or maybe a collection of capacitors that can store enough energy, say to fire a hundred rounds of these flechettes which do bullet level damage, you have the equivalent of, well, a hundred rounds worth of gunpowder in that weapon. So optimal choice at that point is to shoot the weapon. If you shoot the weapon and you hit the capacitor, it will discharge itself. And if that weapon can fire, say, 100 flechettes at, say, 45 caliber level of damage, that's 100 bullets worth of smokeless powder in that uh, weapon. That's a big explosion at that point. So the we those weapons become actually more dangerous to a user unless they become overly protected or there's something in the capacitor that prevents it from being discharged at once from being damaged. But I don't know. I, I would feel kind of, you know, I hate to say the, the, the first one made an Earth Prime, I would probably put someplace far away from me just in case the thing decides to explode on me from, the, from being overcharged. They designed it poorly. If they didn't plan ahead for something like this happening, then you could get these situations where a drop of sweat causes the entire thing to go off. Yeah, and the, and the whole idea behind that was it's not that uh, I think that that is the most likely future, but I was thinking that if you we're talking about a weapon of the future, you know, something that would be high tech, um, we already have um, you know bullet technology, projectile tech, you know, the ballistic projectile technology. Um, fired by a chemical round. I was just trying to think of something that was not that, you know, some, something that was yeah. something else, a future weapon. And that was just something I that I had been reading about that seems to be the most likely direction that we're headed if we're going to move on to some new, like completely new kind of weapon. With the 20 years or 40 years or 50 years in the future, you got a lot of hand-waving you could do there. You could say we solved all those problems. You know, these, this, this weapon works. Yeah, that would be the, uh, the the thing where the you know like movie the way movie uh, writers do they say well yeah yeah so we came up with that thing that fixed it you know and and that would that's what you would have is you would just say well we fixed that yeah that would be it that was a problem you're right when the first places you're gonna probably see uh, coil guns or or rail guns in use will be as artillery pieces because there you can launch really heavy projectiles without any form of gunpowder, good distance, and you're still going to actually have rockets or some sort of, uh, actually, yeah, like a rocket inside the shell, so that once it leaves the quail gun, it now is self-guided and can guide itself onto target, but now at a tremendous boost, you know, like 20, you know, 10 Gs worth of boost, 
to get going. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I wasn't saying that, you know, I was talking about man portable. Uh, absolutely. You could you could even say it, it'd be even realistic to say, you know, in 10 years from now that they would come up with some type of um, large scale rail gun that would be very realistic. I mean, large scale laser guns are, are somewhat realistic. They're not maybe not quite as efficient, but depending on the, the purpose that you're using it for, it may be. Uh, I was just talking about man portable. True, and the current our current technology in uh, laser technology takes a beef a uh, 747 to carry everything you need to, to fire it, and the results is highly toxic because they're uh, fluorine hydrogen, I believe. In the process, it fires up megawatts worth of energy into the laser. Once your tanks run out of juice, that's it; can't shoot no more. Well, I think that the GM has to look at his players and kind of judge their sensibilities. If he thinks he can get away with laser guns and, and rail guns and things like that, and they're going to say, oh, yeah, that's perfectly believable, I think he should go for it. That'd be really fun to do that, you know, to have that kind of stuff available. If you've got people who are all, you know, major league engineers and, and work for the telephone company and things like that, who actually know some real science, then maybe that's not the way they want to go for that particular kind of technological advance. All right, so let's move on to the next tech item. I was thinking about transportation. For example, what kind of transportation they can have in the future beyond what we have today. You know, there'll be improvements, of course, on, on regular cars where we have them and, and bullet trains and, and maglev and, and all that kind of stuff. But that's all today's technology just pushed up a little bit. I was thinking of the next generation of things. You're not going to have anti-gravity, at least not near future. That would be far future, and that's perfectly acceptable. But in near future, you're probably looking at more things like uh, vertical lift and, and Osprey-type vehicles, you know, like the Blade Runner cars, but maybe probably a little more thrust coming out of the bottom of them. Everybody have their own personal plane, and it's just like it looks like a little car with wings and, and propellers on it. Um, and the apparently the wings they they can turn 90 degrees so that, that you can land it in vertical lift. I'm thinking that's the kind of transportation you're going to be looking at for the for a near future type adventure. I kind of always went the other direction. Uh, there was a book by Norman Spinrad where uh, his primary character rode around on a bicycle that had a blimp attached to it. And what he would do is, is when he wanted to use the blimp, he had a tank of helium on it, and he would just simply allow that to go into the, the blimp part and expand up, and he'd take up in the air. And then his bike would now be running uh, rotors and, and impellers to push the thing along where he wanted to go. And then when he wanted to land, he'd do some kind of switch with his changer, and he'd start pumping the uh, hydrogen back into the tank, and then he'd come down to the ground and keep pumping it until he got it all the way down, and then he'd just go riding around like a bicycle. So the fact that somebody could just go and have an airplane on demand, in a sense, he wouldn't be able to travel at, at, at 100 miles an hour, 200 miles an hour. The most he could possibly be hoping for would be maybe 15 miles an hour, depending upon the wind speed. But here's a, a kind of technology that isn't available today, and I think it would be really great to go into a world where you saw all these people flying around on their own little personal blimps, you know, going to their jobs, being tethered like bundles of balloons at a, uh, at a circus, you know, to, uh, against a building and going inside that way or just riding around normally. That's the kind of advanced technology I could see happening. My own personal vision is you walk into a future where car ownership is, is pretty much gone, except for really, really rich people. But the cars drive themselves, so what you have here is, a, is one of these sharing programs where everyone 
basically shares cars. So if you need to get someplace, you just hit a, hit a button on your cell phone, and the car comes up. You get, get inside, tell you where you need to go. It takes you there. You get out. It goes off. Find someone else. It'd be a lot more mass transit. It'd be a lot more living. It, it, basically, a lot more walkable com- communities. Transportation is basically a, an issue only for going away from your community than within your community because within your community, it's everything is within a 10-minute walk. That you need to go to. So we're talking a really totally different society uh, than we have here in America right now. Uh, something actually a bit more European. If you want to go just that little extra step forward, it could also have to be the first steps for teleportation, where people you you walk into a booth, dial a number, boom, you're someplace else. There is no transportation. There are no planes. A few helicopters here and there, just because having a vehicle for transport is, is nice sometimes. But for the most part, things are handled by teleportation. So that would be a place people would love to come along, steal one of those booths, and take it back to the portal. Whenever I think of teleportation or transport or stuff like that, I, I mean, that really signals far future to me. Uh, I think of new future. I think of near future. I think of like in, within the next 20 years or something that looks like the next 20 years. Did touch on something there that makes that makes a lot of sense. If you want to go a, a compl- like like just a little bit of a different direction, perhaps people don't teleport. Perhaps they just don't even travel there. You know, with communication being so much better, perhaps you know people don't really need to go certain places. They just conference in. So you don't get up and go to work. You get up and you go and you sit at your desk and then you you have a like a virtual you have a virtual office where it seems like you're in an office. You see everybody around you like you would in an office, but everybody's virtually there. They're all actually at home. Uh, and meetings would be conducted that way. Going to a bar could be done that way. And then if you really wanted to meet the person, like you'd meet somebody that you'd like, you really want to meet them, then you would actually go to them, and that's when the travel would occur. Unless the adventurers could plug in, that would be a very hard adventure to have any kind of hooks. Or what, or what are you thinking about hooks into the adventure for that sort of thing? Actually, I was, and I was just thinking of, of how the world would be. You know, maybe you wouldn't even have to plug in. Maybe there, you know, there'd just be sensors in the walls and stuff, so that you could actually be a part of it fairly easily. Or it could even be, you know, a microchip that gets injected into, you know, underneath your skin or maybe right on your spinal column. That'd be sim- very fairly simple to do, and then your players could have that fairly easily. Okay, the adventure would happen either primarily in a virtual world. Or you could have a situation where everybody had so, become so reliant upon this kind of virtual technology that some nefarious things might occur. For example, you might have a group of people who was actually, in a sense, hacking into the system and making people change their points of view. Then you'd have to go and prove that somehow or even go to where those hackers were if you're the only person on the world who actually travels and doesn't think twice about traveling, that would give you a tactical advantage over people who never expect the, you know, the authorities to come through the front door because if they got arrested, what would they do? They would take them and put them in another room where they never leave? <laughs> right. I, I, mean, I mean, punishment would be them taking away privileges. Oh, okay, instead of you having access to, you know, these virtual realities, now your virtual reality is the equivalent of, a, of four walls and whatever, and you're inside this blank space now, and you have to stay there. You know, in other words, you have to meet the actual world in which you live. Right. Basically, what happens is they would just cut you off from the outside world, and you wouldn't really be able to go anywhere too easily because travel is so restricted as it is because it's so – you know people don't generally do that, whereas the characters wouldn't be so limited to that because they would have more of a concept of why don't you just 
go walk outside, you know, just walk to the place. And they'd be like, walk, walk where? I don't even know how to get there. What do you mean? How would I walk? I don't even know where I live. Yeah. Right. Right. I don't even know where my house is in in comparison to what? Yeah. And that's where, you know, that's the kind of adventure you could have. And that would, wow. You know what? That is really cool. You know, that's pretty neat. And you also remember there'll be the offlines and the onlines. There would be that, that small minority of, of people who refuse to get chipped or live in the VR couches or whatever, and they, they live offline. And they basically may have found that the onlines don't acknowledge them, but don't stop them either. So they may just live the life of Riley because you know, all the onlines are living in their little cocoons and being fed you know intravenously and so forth, and they're out there having the time of their life without these idiots. All the suits who are now in VR are gone, and you got got the hippie life going on out there as well. So you actually have two different cultures going on at the same time, a, a, a online culture and the offline culture. Right, and you know, and what's amazing about that is, is that actually makes for a plausible near future, not even a far future. We're not too – we're not really – I mean realistically, we're not – all that far from something like that being possible if things were, you know, were to gear that way. Yeah, yeah like this, like this, uh, this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> we're virtually hanging right. out and having a conference. So computers should probably look pretty different because they advance so quickly. My concept of a futuristic computer, or at least a near futuristic computer, would be something that you would wear, perhaps like a watch, because you don't want your computer at home anymore, and you don't want to have to carry around something like a laptop. And then you would have eyeglasses or contacts that would prevent, you know, that would be your, um, that would be your screens that would kind of float out in front of you, float out in the air virtually, and then built into the watch you have like a gyroscope and a muscle sensor that would turn your hand into sort of like a virtual type mouse. And of course, you could always have earphones built into the the earpieces on your glasses, or you could just have like one piece uh, that that attaches to the side of your neck, like a sub, you know, like a sublingual. My vision for computers is that they eventually become plumbing. You don't think about the plumbing in your house, and you don't think about the computers in your house. Ubiquitous computing is the term. So it gets to the point where, yeah, there's computer. There's no. You don't have a desktop machine anymore because it's your entertainment center, and it's also your when you do your teleconferencing. It's also when you want to go see friends. It's ubiquitous, but you don't really think of it as a computer anymore. You think of it as something else. So it may be that it may come to a point where people don't think about, about having a computer because it's just there. Right, so it's built into everything. So if, like, you want to use your computer, you know, the, the wall would sense who you are, and then wherever you store your information or your programs or whatever, um, it just accesses that automatically because it detects who you are. So you just walk up to a wall and call up a screen and start doing some stuff, and then maybe later on you'd be on the bus and you'd touch the back of a chair and you do some more stuff so that the computer was wherever you were because it's built into everything. Unless, of course, you're fringe where you're visiting this world. It goes, who are you? You're not chipped. You don't have the RFID chip in you. We don't know who you are. Where did you come from? Or where did you, where did you come from? Because you don't have a chip in you. Everyone has a chip in them. Even people in sub-Saharan Africa have chips in them. Right, or it just doesn't recognize you at all. You know, you see people doing stuff, you don't even know what they're doing because you can't even see it. So uh, the next thing I'm thinking about for near future is, is space stations and colonization. And I would think that that would be – we're looking at more near planet, um, perhaps the moon. 
maybe some stuff on Mars, maybe, maybe stretching it, some Jovian or Saturn moon type stuff, but they would be really remote and very, you know, low populated. Um, but you're not going to see, if we're talking near future, you're not going to see colonization on any kind of the thousands of people or anything like that because there are just way too many technical issues you have to overcome. Uh, things like radiation, you know, supply like oxygen and food and such. You're not going to be terraforming Mars. It, that's sort of a um, sort of a sci-fi concept that that's really flawed. If you look into the real science of it, it's nearly impossible to terraform something like Mars. It doesn't have enough gravity to actually hold onto an atmosphere for any period of time, which is kind of the reason why it doesn't really have one now. It would be fun to have like a mar like a mining base on Mars that would make a really neat adventure. You, know, you come out of the portal and you're on this this mining base on Mars, which only has a population of maybe a thousand or two thousand people at best. You know, sort of like Total Recall. That that was a little uh, um, generous in the science. It wouldn't survive with the society that they depicted. It would just collapse within within months. Right, but a colony on another world or even Mars is really a cool thing because right now we can't do that. That's something that's, you know, in most of the adventures that take place in the modern day or even the near past, the idea of actually having a moon base, actually having an adventure that starts off on the planet and goes to another world, uh, even as a colony, would be impossible to even conceive without a major alteration of history. But in the near future, this actually becomes possible. And so the players would actually be able to live out some of those space pilot-type fantasies that they might have been wanting to do in their science fiction games. And this is the first opportunity that they're really going to have to do that because of the fact that it has, um, you know, this is in the, in the near future. So you'll have moon bases. You'll have Mars bases. You might even you'll have space stations and possibly uh, suborbital shuttles things of that nature, because it's now become possible for that to happen, even plausible for that to happen. When we talk about near future, too, you should also address the Victorians, who are a few years behind us, say, 18, oh, like 1889, yeah, their near future could be just as exciting for people from Earth Prime as it would be people from Victorian Prime. Say, a world where Caverite actually works and there are spheres going from Earth to Moon and all that, all that fun stuff. Uh, but unfortunately, it only works within the Victorian in that world because, of course, it uses odd physics. It's one of those parallel worlds where things only work there and not any place else. Yes, you can bring a big tub of hot, hot cavalry back to Earth, prime. It does absolutely nothing. But on this world, it works, and it lifts things into orbit and all, all that great stuff. That gives you an opportunity to use the other aspect, which is something we haven't really talked about too much. Worlds that are others, that would be a good other, you know, or, or Edgar Rice Burroughs' eighth ray of the sun that was anti-gravity ray. You know, here, that wouldn't work. You know, you bring a tank of that stuff through the fringe path, and all of a sudden, it doesn't float anymore. There's a lot of alternate physics types worlds where you could have a lot of interesting things happen, or... You could say that the world is much like our own world, and it's a point in which our history even matches. However, there is something different about uh, subatomic physics that with the right combination of forces or conditions, you could get something like Calvarite being formed. So uh, it's a question of how you feel this kind of thing would fit into the rest of the game is it going to be disruptive or not? 
is the big question. Are you going to be able to achieve the world that you want and still have this? Is it plausible? You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. So there's many wonderful things that can happen in the near future. There's many opportunities for devices and technologies to be discovered so that the Earth can be made a better place. Because remember, the main, one of the main reasons that the explorers are out there is because Earth has problems. And it's very likely that Earth is looking for technological solutions to those problems. And so going to a near-Earth world is kind of a given that they might have some solutions to the problems that we have. That's where the caveat comes in. As a GM, you've got to be very careful about how you introduce your technology. If you bring in back something like a super um, solar cell that can replace all of your gas and, and everything else uh, of generation, well, first of all, that's going to cause whole industries to collapse on Earth. Uh, there's, there's going to be uh, wars in the Mideast. Uh, there's going to be a lot of problems at, at when a new technology that's so radical is introduced back to Earth. Uh, it's also possible that you can change uh, some of the limitations that have been in your campaign. And this may be a bad thing, not a good thing. Most people see the limitations in the game as bad, but it's one of the things that keeps everything on an even keel, where you go to on the fringe path and electricity doesn't work. Okay, well, what if you come up with some kind of a um, engine, uh, uh, for example, that uh, uses uh, this purely biological and can produce uh, 150 horsepower. Well, that's going to change things. And you as a GM are going to have to really look and say, okay, in the long run, how's that going to be good or bad? And am I, am I willing to accept that change in my campaign? Because, you know, once you let that Pandora's box open, then you, can, you should expect the players to want to go with it. They're going to be start making deals with corporations back on Earth. They're going to be designing new equipment that uses the new technology you have available. They're going to want to take that with them to all kinds of worlds. And so whatever technology they bring back, first of all, I think you're going to want it not to be too good. You want it to be something that will be relatively hard to reproduce, at least within the time period of your campaign, because nobody's campaign is going to run forever. And unless you start jumping forward in time to go and bring them to different parts of the timeline of the campaign, like say you run four or five adventures, and then you say, okay, now we're going to go like five years later and start doing some more adventures where you can see some of these changes take place, then most of the technology that you're going to discover is really going to just make you famous. Uh, the characters at least. And that's a good thing. But if it radically changes your campaign in a way that you don't want, then you should think twice about running that adventure uh, or at least put some kind of limitations so that the, uh, the technology can't basically run, run your campaign instead of you running your campaign. It's the old law of unintended consequences. Uh, for ex the great example is Blix brought up was the transporter in Star Trek. They had that thing break every time, otherwise it would blow plots out of the water. If you give your characters a gun that can shoot 100 rounds a second and you can hold a capacity of 1,000 flechettes, combat becomes trivial at that point for the characters. Miller infestation? It's gone. Well, not only that, but it's almost a jet engine, isn't it? Yeah! The third law of uh, mass, you know, you, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah, but you're 
you're only talking about gram worth of shells, and they're not going to push that hard on you when you fire. It's just going to be like holding a water hose or anything else. The one thing that, that holds back a lot of these advancements going back to uh, IDET or another world or whatever is what is referred to as economy of scale. Perhaps, yeah, there's some great technology that if you could bring back to Earth, it would be, you know, be fantastic. It would change everything. The only problem is the facility you need to develop that technology to actually build it might be some huge plant that requires all these other advancements. So you'd have to advance in 10 different fields just to build this one thing. Uh, may not be practical to even bring back. I mean, it's like, yeah, I could bring back this device but there's no way we could ever reproduce it because we'd have to do this and then that and then something else just to get to that it'd be a laboratory queen it would just live in the lab because they could never reproduce it outside that could be okay because that could be a form of fringe commerce some world that can produce these they have the technology they have the infrastructure to produce this they could say okay we're going to give you this and you instead give us oranges because we can't grow oranges for some reason we have some bug in our world that eats them up alive, and so we can't grow orange trees. So you can use that to your advantage. Right, right. But the, the point of the matter is is that if a DM wants to limit something, that's all he has to do. He just All he has to do is say, well, you know, the economy of scale for building this, you know, taking this technology back to Earth is just not going to happen. So what you're going to have to do is set up a trade, figure out something that they need that we have to get that or you can always just say, well, that's great. you got this really cool item, and you're the only one that has it. And when it breaks, well, you don't have it anymore. Right. So if it unbalances the adventure too much, at some point the DM goes, oh, okay, well, you fell down this, this well, and guess what you broke? We don't want to nerf this. I mean, we don't want to say, hey, every world they go to, they find great technology, they can't bring it back to Earth. We're just simply saying is that make sure that it doesn't unbalance your campaign. And one of the ways that we're suggesting here is that, okay, it's not reproducible in any reasonable time period on Earth. But it doesn't mean you can't trade for those items and therefore set up some kind of a flow, even a small flow into Earth Prime, making some of these things available to the players but not in an overwhelming let's everybody's want to have this thing kind of situation. Right, right, exactly. I, I, totally, yep. That's the end for Episode 3, and thank you so much for listening. We look forward to seeing your comments and suggestions for future episodes on our boards at www.tritacgamers.com.